Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. My name is Todd Rittendero, and in this conversation, I sit down with my friend and one of my mentors, Carl Ganas. Carl is a master draftsman with an expert understanding of the dynamics of human form. His grasp of movement, anatomy, and energy has made him an in-demand advisor to an animation industry eager to infuse more authenticity into its characters and creature designs. He most recently consulted for Disney's Moana and has a standing weekly figure drawing class at Disney Feature Animation, as well as having taught at other studios such as DreamWorks and Sony Imageworks. Carl has lectured and exhibited his work internationally in Florence, Copenhagen, Dublin, and Los Angeles. And in this conversation, we talk about his unique approach to drawing and studying the figure, the connection between the Renaissance way of thinking about drawing and animation, and he shares some great insights about studying the masters and how to improve and think about drawing. I've learned a tremendous amount from Carl over the years, and he shares some great nuggets in this talk, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks so much for doing this, Carl. I appreciate you sitting down with me. You're welcome. My pleasure. I've been lucky enough to study with you for several years now, and we've had many long, in-depth conversations about drawing, arts, and life, and I'm really excited to get some of this down in one recording, because I think it's going to be really useful to artists, photographers, filmmakers across the board, because you have such a depth of knowledge about so many things that uh, it's, it's actually hard to figure out where to start. I first found you through your drawing and painting classes at the Guild, and when I first saw your work, I, I literally thought I was looking at a, a Renaissance master's work that had been somehow stolen from the Uffizi. And you have such a unique style of drawing that I'd really love to get into how you learned and what your thinking processes are. So when was it, or who did you start studying with when you first got serious about drawing? Well, that's an interesting question, because I'm not sure that I was even aware that I was developing these skills or had these skills as a child. And uh, other people seem to recognize the fact that I had these skills before I did. In fact, teachers in my grade school, junior high school, and so on, would ask me to do projects for them. And I suppose that's because they realized something, but I never really, really thought about it as being something special. So I would do various things for the, for my teachers in school. I don't think it was until late in high school that I realized that this was something that I might actually be able to do for a living, to actually do in my life, other than something that I just do for enjoyment. I always thought, since I grew up in Detroit, that perhaps I might end up working on the assembly line or something like that. But I did go to art school in Detroit. At that time, the school was called Society of Arts and Crafts. It's now a much larger school under another name, and it is uh, very close proximity to to the Detroit Institute of Art which I think is, you know, one of the really great museums in in the United States. So I had proximity to that and proximity to other people with similar interests, you know, suddenly. And my, my interest began to develop. My direction began to develop. I began to see more and more what it was that I was looking for. And I had a strong sense that the figure was going to be most important for me. But it wasn't till I moved to Los Angeles and ran into a couple of teachers that I regard as being 
the great greatest facilitators of of my thought. And they were Lorser Feidelson and Harry Carmine. It just basically spun my head around about what could be done with the figure. Nonetheless, it wasn't everything. I still had much, much work to do in order to understand the best way to learn. But that's basically how it started, along that line. And what was it in their work that you were responding to or that blew your mind? Well, uh, Lorser had a tremendous amount of knowledge. And he could, he was so facile with the drawing. It was actually fascinating to watch him. And he had a tremendous sense of history. He was a great storyteller. And his protege was Harry Carmion. And Harry was also quite a terrific draftsman. And I think he even dug into it deeper than Lorser did, in that it became his main uh, focus. You know, for me, it was magical watching him work. And although he didn't say it, I was able to, in some sense, deconstruct how he was working in order to proceed which, with my own education. And actually, that was probably a good thing, because what it did is it started me asking questions. And the questions led to a kind of inquiry and analysis of what was going on that I think set my mind in a new direction about how you approach drawing. Rather than you just draw what you see in a sight-sized sort of way, that you're actually thinking about how things work, how they're constructed, how they're put together, what they're doing, and so on. And I, I also had a, a great interest in writing, and so story was important to me. And I began to see that these two, these two enterprises belong together that when I draw, what is it I am actually trying to say? What am I trying to work with here? And so story led me to essentially approach the drawing from the point of view of, of the verb rather than the noun, the doing part of it. And the question became the catalyst for driving me towards the answers that I needed to, to have. So coming with a question therefore becomes primary and any question will do but what it does is it it activates me and that's one of the things that I try to pass on to my students is that the the question is of utmost important if you're not asking a question then you're just waiting to be spoon-fed right and perhaps many years that's where I was at right uh, until I got on to this thing about the question what would be an example of a question that you came with, or maybe a good one for a student to come with? Well, the first question I think is, is what is the subject doing? If I'm drawing someone, it's the doing, it's actually the action that is taking place. And that could be an aesthetic action. You know, maybe it's the, what's interesting is, well, the sense and feeling of the posture or the pose or the action or it could be it could be narrative what is the subject intending what's the subject's character how are they expressing that through their body and so on so that question it may be the leading question that leads into many more so i know that the way that you approach drawing is a pretty unique way of thinking about drawing and i was wondering if you could go into that a little bit well many of the ideas are very common ideas about drawing and they're basically scattered all across the board. 
And drawing, after all, is drawing. You're encompassing all kinds of things all at once. What's unique about what I've done is, is that I've broken the drawing process down into, into stages. Basically, for developing skills, it's the first three stages. And in those three stages, there are certain concepts and ideas. These concepts and ideas may be common to everybody, but by putting them in these stages, it's possible for one to follow uh, one's development and even be able to troubleshoot their difficulties and problems by asking the right questions. One is, is which stage am I having the problem in? So just briefly, the three stages are, the first one is gesture. In other words, that's what's the idea? What's the story? What's the subject doing? That sort of thing. So you notice that it, it has to do with the action. It doesn't say, what does a subject look like? But more, what's the story I'm telling? The second stage really is about construction and development, and it has to do with a fleshing out with basic concepts and ideas. The second stage is really all about the visual language and uh, developing the visual language. So any concepts and ideas that fit there belong in that stage. The third stage is anatomy. And anatomy allows you to be more articulate about the visual ideas that you're working with. So if a visual idea is a simple thing like a cylinder that has an axis and a direction, at some point that cylinder might begin to have the characteristics or features of a leg or an arm, something like that. By bringing in the anatomy, it helps articulate the visual concepts and ideas so that your drawing becomes more complete. Now, I know from when I was in college and whatnot studying drawing, your stage two takes a, a sharp right turn from the classical sight size method of thinking in terms of construction. Well, let me say something about sight size. I think that people come to sight size too early and it creates a habit of approaching your subject as if oh, the only thing that matters is what the eye sees. So it becomes a very a flat interpretation of what you're drawing. And my method is to approach it from a more volumetric approach. It's more three-dimensional. In other words, I'm thinking when I'm looking also around the form, not just from left to right and top to bottom, all the right shapes, but actually thinking around the form. So if I'm seeing the front and someone is stretching, I'm thinking about, well, what is the spine doing? And so on. And what is the energy in the body? What is the thrust and movement of a gesture? And those things are not visible in terms of lines and shapes. They're visible more in terms of an attitude. It's more like a dance that you're looking for. And you find that in the opening stage, which is gesture. But you develop it with visual concepts. Now, if you take a visual concept, like a cylinder, it's going to be rather solid. But you allow it to melt into the gestural attitude so that that, that cylinder isn't concrete. It, uh, it's plastic. It's more, more alive. And if you do that, then you're not actually forgetting the intent of the first stage, which is what is the feeling and what is the subject doing. So all of these things sort of bend themselves to the course and direction of the, of the first intent, which is the gesture. 
okay? And the gesture, remind you, one again, once again, is, uh, you know, what's the action? What's the story? Right. So I'm always taking these things and moving them in that direction. And, and then, of course, if you bring in your anatomical uh, thoughts and ideas, they will also bring some new information to the forms that you're building. Now, sight size, I think, and the way I would use it, or I should say flat shapes and so on, is a way of kind of cinching up and cross-checking your decisions. Because up till now, it's been kind of free-flowing, and you're using kind of relative proportion. But when you use actually sight size, you're taking measurement. So it becomes more cerebral, if that makes sense. For sure. You also have a concept that I have found immensely helpful, and I'd love to ask you to go a little bit more in depth in this, which is the general model. Yes, the general model would be uh, really actually part of uh, stage two. The general model for me is, it's important in that it provides a form of measurement, a standard by which you measure all things or all other figures. So if you have a general model of a human adult figure, you can use that as a way of measuring the specific case. So if I'm drawing you, you will not uh, have the same measurements of my general model, but the general model, like a yardstick, allows me to say, oh, you're longer in the leg, broader in the shoulder, and so on. So anyone that stands before me, I can measure them according to the general model. Now what that does is it allows, it allows the artist to make an assessment without starting from scratch. Because you're, you're, you're bringing something to the table, and it's a tremendous help. It's like having, as I said, a yardstick or a tape measure, right? You wouldn't, a contractor wouldn't walk in without some measuring a tool. And this is, this is ours, and we can cultivate and develop this on our own. Sight size doesn't measure real lengths, and your general model is a measurement of true lengths. But we never see things in true lengths. Or rarely. I mean, we're seeing many things are foreshortened. Some things are concealed. And so the idea of having a general model gives you a sense of how things are. But it doesn't deal with directly with the foreshortening, right? So sight size can help you by measuring, say, the length of the, let's just say your arm is reaching forward towards the observer. The more that arm reaches up, the shorter the arm's length becomes. Now that can be measured on a two-dimensional plane by simply taking its length and measuring that length against something else. So that's the value of sight size. But it doesn't talk about the volume of that, the, the three-dimensional axis of that, and it doesn't give you a sense of drawing through the form or the anatomy of the form. All it does is, is copy edges and duplicate what the eye sees. But drawing is much more than duplicating what the eye sees. That allows you to make basically story choices. You can push something or pull back from it. You can draw what you want to communicate rather than just what the eye sees. And was some of these ideas rooted in what Harry Carmine was teaching you? The way I'm, the way I'm putting these ideas together is, uh, has, has come from a lot of analysis about procedure and from working with people, seeing what works for me and what works for others. Although I learned a lot 
from Harry Carmian and Lorser and Glenn, my good friend, uh, Vilpu, Glenn Vilpu. There was still a lot of work to be done in order to arrive at the procedure that I, I'm now working with. And by the way, it's still always evolving. I'm watching constantly to see what works in my classrooms and what doesn't work. And by the way, sometimes something works really well and doesn't work another time so well. So I'm, I'm constantly having to address the issue according to the conditions and situation and people that are, I'm involved with in the moment. All right? And the same is true with me. I'm also very mercurial in terms of what's working for me. Might not be working for me in half an hour. So I'm constantly, constantly on this surfboard trying to find how the wave wants to go. And actually, I've become very comfortable with that. I began to realize that's the way it is. I don't know if it's that way for everybody, but it is that way for me. And I seem to observe that it seems to be that way for a great number of my students as well. You mentioned your friendship with Glenn Vilpu. Was that way back from your Art Center days? Actually, it was. When I was, uh, when I was attending Art Center, Glenn Vilpu had just graduated, apparently, from Art Center and was teaching night classes. I was working as a switchboard operator, <laughs> if anyone can remember what that means, and, and, and in reception. And he would wander out of his classes and we'd start having conversations. And he'd watch what I was drawing and doodling. And uh, we developed a friendship, right? And eventually he invited me down to his uh, studio on Pier Street in Venice. At that time, there was this amusement park called P.O.P., Pacific Ocean Park, at the end of the street. It was quite an interesting place. Long Beach was somewhat of a sailor town, so these sailors would come up there. And it was quite colorful. So you'd have artists, sailors, you know, uh, tattoo parlors, you name it. Just a very, very interesting and area to be. And he had this studio there. So I started drawing down there in a workshop. It was kind of like an open workshop. And uh, basically, I met my tribe down there. The people I was actually working with at Art Center were all interested in, in other approaches for their art than apparently I was. And I basically found the people that I could communicate with in that, uh, in that setting, in that environment. So Glenn and I became good friends. I would sit in on his classes occasionally and so on. And that's how it all, that, that's how our friendship began. Mm. Yeah. And what was he interested in at the time that you were also? He was, he was a painter at that time. There were a great number of us down there that were interested in the storytelling expertise of the masters, the Renaissance. And so that became the study. And we went into that quite deeply. At the suggestion of Harry Carmian, Glenn had started a group of study for composition of the great masters of the Renaissance. Glenn actually, a year or two later, suggested that, that I do the same thing. I create a group. And we were fortunate enough to have Harry Carmian come in and as a consultant when we were doing our study of the Renaissance. Actually, it was more than the Renaissance. We started with, the, with Giotto, who is uh, typically considered to be the beginning of the Renaissance. 
and uh, went all the way through the Impressionists, studied all the composition of all the ones that made significant contributions to the uh, development and evolution of the art form. Wow, that must have been an incredible group to sit in on. Well, I I learned years later, uh, after speaking to Glenn, he said his group and my group were the only groups that ever did that. His group was a group of eight or ten, and my group was a group of eight or ten. We did it outside of school, and we brought, like I say, we brought Harry in to work with us. We would do the, we would do the work, and Harry would come in and tear it all apart. It was, it was really terrific. And once we understood, say, Masaccio or Fra Angelico or Michelangelo, we would do a painting in their style, but not the same subjects. We'd use our own subject, painting with the methods of those masters. Wow. And, uh, and then Harry would come in and destroy us. <laughs> and we would go back to work and, until we got it right. You know, it was rather interesting. Incredible. So if, say, you, you, we began to understand what Giotto was doing and his methods at his level at that particular time, and we agreed on those methods, then we would, we would set out and begin our own paintings using just those methods. Not any methods that we would come to the table with, but only the methods of Giotto, right? For instance. Wow. It was an extraordinary undertaking, yeah. It sounds like a, a total boot camp for uh, yeah. Renaissance deconstruction. Yeah. I think it was a, a wonderful way to see how composition works visually, as opposed to in the form of writing, right? So... I was also doing a lot of writing at the time, and it's one thing to tell a story that way, but to tell a story in a single image is something else. Now, of course, later on, when I went into storyboarding, because I storyboarded for Disney for some time, it became a narrative which goes from picture to picture to picture. As a storyboard artist, one picture doesn't hold all the information, but with the Renaissance, one picture holds the whole story. When you look at a painting by a Renaissance master, say Caravaggio or something like that. You don't ask, well, what happened before or what happens later? The implication of all of that is in the picture. And anything you need to know is right there in that picture. Right? The whole story is there. So it's a different approach to story than, say, graphic novel or storyboarding or cinema. So after all that study of composition of the Renaissance masters, there obviously were probably overlaps were there takeaways that then just became a part of your work? Oh yeah, I, I, it, it, uh, you know, it, it becomes a way of seeing. You begin to see compositionally, right? So you're not you're not stuck with their approach, but what it does is it it involves you in a in a dialogue in a conversation about what could picture making is and how you come to it. Composition, so far, what i found is composition in books about composition, um, they speak generally about things, but this is an intimate dialogue that you're having with an artist that's created the kind of work that we've been looking at for 500 years, right? It's not just about this is a good way to do a composition. It's much deeper than that, much more, much and more intimate in a way. You're studying the storytellers, not the ones that are telling you how composition works. 
but the actual storytellers. At any rate, when we look at their work, we can see why it stands the test of time, right? What makes great art? And I think it's great composition. It's not necessarily great drawing, but it's great composition. What is composition? Composition is story, right? It's great storytelling in a visual language, right? Now, obviously, there have been a lot of different ways to tell stories. For instance, if you look at the way someone does a layout for animation, they create rather simple compositions with a, oftentimes a, a, a single focus, main focus. It's like a one-ring circus, right? But the Renaissance, in the Renaissance, they were doing three-ring circuses. So there wasn't only just one point of interest, one field of interest, but one could shift from one field to another field. It's very complex. And they were very, very good at it. Nonetheless, when you look at a layout done, say, for animation or for cinema and development, oftentimes the layout is not a complete picture in itself. It might be beautiful. It might, it might have story in it. In that, for instance, if you do, a, let's say, a dressing room, and an action is supposed to take place there. It may have history, feeling of history. Things are draped across other things. There are things in the floor. Not everything is absolutely snap perfect, like, like an architectural drawing. It has movement and history to it. It's alive in a way. Nonetheless, it is not the complete story. It is a stage, somewhat like a stage might be where you actually go watch a play. It is a stage. It's a stage for an event to take place. Now, it's obvious that events have taken place there before, but that's all part of its, its character and charm. But now it's basically waiting for the new event to take place. But with a painting, it's that plus the story. The whole story is taking place in that one single picture. In a graphic novel, you're actually moving the camera around so it's not one, pic, uh, one picture at all. You've got two sets of movements when you're watching, uh, when you're looking at a graphic novel or, or when you're looking at something that's storyboarded or something in cinema. One is you've got the movement of the characters and the other from picture to picture, but you've also got the movement of the camera itself. So you've got two actions taking place and they're always in conjunction with one another. Now imagine trying to create that kind of excitement in a single picture. <laughs> right? And, and that's what we were studying, is how you create that kind of excitement in a single picture. Well enough that you want to keep coming back to it like a good book or a classical book. What do you think are some of those compositional elements that make a work stand the test of time? Well, that's kind of difficult to Right, that's probably a whole... To describe. That's a, yeah, that's a whole... Go study the masters is the answer to that. That's a whole story <laughs> in itself. I mean, there's, there's, there are a lot of different titles for these things, like there's classical composition, there's manner, mannerism, and the mannerists, some mannerists went one way, some mannerists went another. For instance, um, let's say Titian is, is classical, and if you take Tintoretto that comes from Titian, he's, he becomes more of a mannerist, but if you look at, if you look at Michelangelo, he's a, he became a mannerist, and if you look at El Greco, he might be the supreme mannerist. If you look at his work, compared to the others, it's quite uh, radical in a way and took mannerism to, I think, its final 
destination. And then some new idea comes up about where one can go. And for instance, let's take go back to Titian for a moment. You start with Titian, and 100 years later, Rubens is basically doing copying Titian well, almost, but it's an homage. There's no, I mean, there's no trickery about it. He's not, he's not claiming the composition, but what he does is he brings something new to the table. And his forms are quite, actually quite extraordinary. And when you look at the Titian, you see that Rubens is responding to him. It's like a dialogue. And then later you can look at, say, the work of Tiepolo. And if you look at these three, you see very, a very, quite a difference in the approach towards the painting style or even the drawing style. For instance, Titian is very soft. I mean, he's more like, uh, if you looked at the difference between Raphael and Michelangelo, there's, there's quite a difference. Although Raphael gets, you know, most of his knowledge from studying Michelangelo. I'm saying studying because I'm being kind. But <laughs> he kind of absconded with the ideas. When Michelangelo was doing the Sistine Chapel, he was basically working on ideas that no one had ever seen before. He was reinventing drawing. And whenever he'd go out for a burger, uh, Raphael and some of the boys would come in and take notes. <laughs> and they worked a lot faster than Michelangelo did, so they produced works before Michelangelo's works were ever seen by the public. The only group of people that were privy to Michelangelo's work were, you know, uh, the Pope and the cadre of people that he would bring in to look at his work. But the public at large had no idea what was going on. And Raphael, therefore, became a little more visible before Michelangelo, but using Michelangelo's ideas. Now, what Raphael brings to the table is something very elegant, which is something that Michelangelo is already leaving behind. He's leaving elegance behind and moving more into more uh, stronger manneristic forms. So Raphael gets to claim that field, and he, and he does it very, very well. So now let's come back to Titian. So Titian is in that classical school that you could say was created by Raphael, this classical school. And when you, by the time you get to Rubens, the forms are much more interesting, or I should say not more interesting, but... Uh, more alive. However, they're very rhythmic and very soft and very appealing to the eye. The classical image is very, very gripping and very, very powerful in its, its perfection. Now it begins with Rubens to dance. And by the time you get to Tiepolo, it's the, the forms are still dancing, but they're sharper edged. They're more dramatic, even more dramatic. They're not as um, lyrical as what uh, Rubens brings to the table. Now, I'm not talking about isms. I didn't so much. I'm just talking about the manner and approach to the drawing itself, right? You see this movement from Titian, who's in the, this classical school, to even Tintoretto, which he starts to move in a manneristic way. But we're actually moving to uh, all the way over to Rubens. These nice, soft, rhythmic forms. And when you look at the two, two images, both the same painting of the same subject, back to back, they're both appealing. You can't say, I love this one over this one. They both bring something new to the table. And I think if somebody's going to uh, do an homage, that 
it's important that they bring something new to the story. Was there any one of the Renaissance masters that personally appealed to you the most? Well, I think originally I, I was taken with, with Michelangelo's work, and obviously da Vinci. So every, every layman knows who da Vinci is, and many of them know who Michelangelo is. So I was aware of their work and their draftsmanship and so on. I really actually didn't know how to deconstruct it to make it useful. Most people, when they drew from Michelangelo, would simply copy the surface, but without real understanding. So, obviously, even actually, when you look at some of Michelangelo's students, they didn't grasp what he was uh, bringing to the table, how profound it was, these different levels of um, mass, the internal to the external, the energy. He would bring these things. And, you know, prior to that, things were much simpler. Now, you did have beautiful artists, like I say, everyone from Giotto to Michelangelo, terrific work. Botticelli's work, wonderful stuff. Uh, Fra Angelico's work, quiet, beautiful, strong. And uh, it has a, if you stay with it, it's almost like a meditation, Fra Angelico. It has tremendous impact. Uh, it's meditative. There's a tremendous amount of work, but Michelangelo was not not really happy with painting and flat art. He was a sculptor, right? So when he was forced into doing these murals in the Sistine Chapel, he had to reinvent it and make it work. So basically, he created sculptural art, which means he created sculptural figures. That didn't exist quite that way before. And of course, he influenced everybody from then on. It's the same thing when perspective came in. Brunelleschi, Gilberti, these people that were involved in developing the concepts of perspective, it changed, also changed everything, right? Mm -hmm. So they were constantly inventing new ways of seeing things, new ways to describe things, new ways to communicate visual ideas, right? Right. It was an exciting time. So I have to say it started with Michelangelo. And, and then my, you know, my tastes began to develop. I was looking at you know, all sorts of artists from that time. But I was actually looking at them from the point of view of what makes these people great. Why do we remember these? Why do we remember these people? And not all of the other ones. Because we see lots of examples in museums. But they're not all great. They're just representations of what different artists were doing during that period. And we're lucky to have those pieces. But there are some masters their work is great. And I really was interested in knowing what the difference was. So that basically was part of my curiosity and led my, my study a certain, down a certain pathway. What makes something really great? It's not doing good composition like you see in composition books. It's not like doing good drawing like um, you see in a lot of books they show you or a lot of teachers teach you. That's not what makes great art. It's, it's being able to tell the story in a compelling way and really understanding the values and abstractions of uh, composition itself. And being able, being able to evolve those things with, as the new tools come along. So when you get to, say, in our studies, when we, when we got to the Impressionists, really interesting things were happening in the world. Science was beginning to look deeper and deeper into things. 
concepts about light and so on were appearing in the dialogue. And of course, there's, you know, finally there's Einstein. But during that dialogue, at the same time that was happening, they were developing new colors for artists, new, new oil colors that you could use that were available, color that had never been there before. And this idea of basically painting form was a concept that the Impressionists put aside. They said, we're not really seeing form. We're seeing, we're seeing light. Why don't we paint light, right? In other words, light reflects off of something. It's got a vibration to it. Now they have all these new colors and they drop form down to a, a subordinate position to, to light itself. So now form is, is still there. It's still helping. But light becomes the major interest. And then you see all of these different artists pursue that at a, at a given time. Now, at the same time all that was happening, there was the academy. In the academy, they were going along and producing the usual thing. But it was, for the most part, not very interesting. On occasion, there were some wonderful artists in that group. And one of them is Jerome. If you look at Jerome's work, it's quite extraordinary. And there were other extraordinary artists, too. But the, the main excitement was what this group of people were doing around Paris and through Europe. They were excited by light. So my interests, obviously, follow a wide variety of approaches. And so I don't have a favorite. I seem to go from one to one. It's like having these little affairs with different artists. You know? <laughs> Completely. I'm, I'm the same yeah. way. I go down a rabbit hole and sure. go all the way. But as far as draftsmanship goes, I would say Michelangelo uh, stands at the top for me. But there's also, there's not a lot of drawings by Bernini. But if you look at his sculpture, he's quite extraordinary. There's Pontormo's work. I love Pontormo. Um, I love the energy and the storytelling of Daumier. And uh, I also love El Greco's forms. And, you know, I can go on and on like this. So is there a, a drawing lineage that you're a part of? Yes, there is. It goes back to the Florentine school of Michelangelo. My teachers, for instance, uh, were Harry Carmian. Harry's teacher was Lorser Feidelson. Feidelson had studied with Bridgman in New York and, and uh, some, several others. And you just kind of can weave your way back towards the thinking that Michelangelo brought to the table, this new sculptural way of thinking about form. However, there have been a lot of new ideas and a lot of evolution in the drawing process. So it isn't identical. For instance, during the latter half of the 20th century, skillful drawing had been put aside to some degree for more conceptual ideas about art. And for me, the interesting thing is is that animation picked up the picked up the ball. Started developing ideas about drawing and taking it to a new level. So although the Florentine school is part of the heritage, drawing concepts and ideas have evolved immensely. One of the greatest developments for me is what animation brought to the table, a much more lyrical way of handling the drawing, more confident in a certain sense. We have the uh, comfort of having as much paper available to us as possible. 
in the days of the Renaissance, they had to make the paper. Every piece of paper was precious. Each piece of paper would be used over and over and over again, or often, uh, until you arrive at the, the drawing that you would like to make on that piece of paper. Today, and in the 20th century, we have paper available to us. So it's, it's not so precious. You can do sketches and put them aside and put them aside. And it allows a certain freedom in the drawing to take place that was not possible in those days, in those early days. And this kind of fluid approach to the drawing that they take with simple characters in the early 20th century began to excite me in terms of handling the figure. So this kind of energy and movement was something that you know, I kind of moved towards in my interests. I think it had a great influence on uh, how the evolution of my drawing is uh, moving. Yeah, I remember, I mean, as a kid, I wanted to be an animator. The first time I saw the concept art from, you know, some of the greats, some of the Disney greats, I mean, who really sort of were drawing in that more sculptural, around the form type of way. So yeah, I'd love to ask you more about your relationship with Disney as a storyboard artist, but also as a Disney master teacher. Do you, what year did you start teaching over there? Well, I actually started as a board artist for Disney in the early 90s and worked in a number of things. And I was being asked at the time, because they saw that I had these skills, to actually, in spare time, teach figure classes. And I declined it. <laughs> I declined it at the time, even though at that time I was already teaching at the Animation Guild. I did not want to be teaching in the studios. I was a little uncomfortable with teaching uh, people that I was working with, that I had to answer to. Later I got over that. Once I stopped working as a storyboard artist, I went into teaching full-time. And I was immediately called back and started teaching at Disney. So I've been, I've been teaching at Disney Feature and Disney Television since uh, 1995. Wow. So I understand you also had a really interesting collaborative relationship with one of Disney's top animators at the time on the movie Tangled, Glenn Keane. It started with Glenn Keane sitting in on my classes at uh, Disney Feature. And uh, we established a, a relationship and a dialogue and at one point, he asked me, as he was starting this new project, Rapunzel, which later became Tangled, uh, he asked me if I could bring to his team the sense of dynamic authority that I teach in my classes. And we decided to, st uh, to develop a special class for that, for animators who were now working in the 3D mode with, with rigs, which are virtual puppets to give a sense of, I guess, authenticity to the movement and characters. They're no longer drawing them 2D at this point, but they're attempting to uh, try to create this feeling, uh, natural feeling with the figures and so on. So we developed this uh, idea for this class. And the way it worked was that I would bring in a figure drawing model and they, and they would take positions and they would attempt to emulate those positions as actions with their 3D puppets, right? Which are called rigs. That's basically how we went about 
this education of movement and so on. And that's how I contributed to that project. Very cool. Actually, I've been working with a variety of teams ever since. Occasionally, they'll have me come in for consulting on one film or another, working in the same manner. Or in the case of Moana, they actually asked me to come in and help create characters that felt authentic. They had already developed their designs and their characters and so on. We got together and worked with attempting to make the main characters especially feel more authentic, uh, more relaxed in their bodies. We basically worked from uh, developing the characters from the inside out, which is not something you see with kind of puppetry. The, the sense of having lift that comes from an internal structure is very different than picking an arm up with, with a string or an attachment that lifts it and moves it from one place to another. And if you really look at Moana, you see we, the, we really address that issue. Whenever she moves, whenever she talks, the right muscles are working. I basically broke down the muscular system of the body and gave them a kind of triage approach. So here's five things. Use two or three of them in any given area. So if you see an arm move forward from the back, you might see the scapula move. Or if the arm lifts you might see, from the front, you might see a clavicle move. Or if she breathes in intensely, you might see some of the uh, muscles in the neck's flex a little bit, in the neck flex a bit. Uh, when she's walking, it's not a walk cycle type of walk. She's gliding and then suddenly she begins to uh, move in a, a larger stride. And it's a more natural approach uh, towards the way the body moves. And you, you can, they're very subtle, but you can, if you look, you can see these things. Now, the, they do a lot of cutting, naturally cinematic cutting in Moana. So the areas I would say, if you really want to take a look at this, are the areas where they don't do as much cutting. So you can actually watch how the characters move from moment to moment rather than from cut to cut. For instance, these moments are during the songs because they basically, the camera follows them rather than cutting uh, so much. You really get a chance to see it. That was my contribution to that film and I was really happy and glad that I was brought in on that because I've always wanted to help work along that line. I've always felt that uh, we could go a little bit further with that. And they did a wonderful job in Moana, by the way. A absolutely everything about that film was done with a great deal of love. And there's a lot of evolution in, in, in the ideas about how to make it feel natural. And uh, well, it was a, a, an enjoyable project. Yeah, I loved that movie. Yeah. I thought they did a great job with everything, lighting, everything across the board. Absolutely across the board, yeah. 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 Studying the light on the water. And Light on the water, the way the water moves, the uh, all the tattoos and how they worked in right. conjunction with the 3D movement. It's, it's great. Yeah, it was incredible. Now in your classes at Disney, you're working with animators on specific projects, or you, you also have just a... a in general, I work with them across the board. Who you know Whoever wants to take some time, I'll come in and work. We'll work with certain ideas. I'll, I'll work with certain questions that they might have about the about the body and mm -hmm. so on. And uh, we'll go into that, we'll examine that, and we'll come up with ideas that they can actually uh, work with. I know you also talk a lot about this idea of skills versus style and technique. Yes. As, mm -hmm. And that probably goes hand in hand with 
breaking bad habits <laughs> that one can fall into. Do you see similarities of common problems or challenges that whether it's your Disney animators who are taking your class or the students at the guild have in common? Okay, I'll address it this way. You spoke, you spoke about uh, style and technique. Um, in the beginning, because I'm really interested in, in people grasping and understanding the difference between skill and technique and style, I basically eliminate style and technique and concentrate on skill. Oftentimes, style and technique will cover a lack of understanding, a lack of skill. So when we eliminate that, you're dealing with the raw material. Can you draw the hand? Can you draw the foot? Can you draw these things in these positions or not? Not how beautiful can you stylize your line and so on. Okay. Right. So once we eliminate that, we get down to the, you know, just we roll our sleeves up and get down to the actual difficulties at hand and address them directly. Right. The thing you asked about habits, this is also a big hit, a big issue. Because everybody, everybody has habits. And when I'm trying to teach something new, the thing that destroys any progress faster than anything else is habits. Because the habits, regardless of whether you agree with the approach we might take, the habits have a tendency of coming in and taking over the moment the work begins. So you can say, yes, I get it, and then go right back to the same habit. So a habit is a, it's, it's the, you know, it's the devil in the machine, so to speak. It's the thing that we don't see that, that comes in and takes over the moment we agree to try something new. It turns it into the same old, same old. And so I'm always dealing with these, these issues because those are the very things that keep one from progressing and evolving in one's understanding. Right. I may be guilty of that every now and again. I don't know. I think we all are. It's possible. I, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> across the board, we all are. So when I see it in my students, it's also a reflection for me. I see, I see it in them and I see it in myself, right? So the danger of not making any progress is all around the table, belongs to all of us, because we have the same issues. The thing is, is will we address those issues and deal with that, that kind of a resistance? Right. Resistance to doing the new thing. What resists? It's the habit that resists. Right. And usually, the habit gets its way. I mean, I think that's an interesting thought to take into this next question, which is that of how do you practice? You've said the phrase before that you don't like discipline. True. But if one needs to continually practice, what's the best approach in your mind? Well, why, did you, why does one start drawing in the first place? Because one is forced into doing it? Is there nothing else available that you enjoy? I think it needs to come from joy and interest and a passion for the subject, not from discipline. Discipline is a policeman. It's constantly at your back. You know the phrase, well, I think that person should be disciplined? Hmm? Right. That's what discipline is. It's a policeman. I would rather have one find their way to their subject through joy and interest and a drive for that that comes from that from that joy rather than from i must do this or else right right when you were getting serious about 
studying the old masters and even when you were getting more and more into animation, did you keep a sketchbook or have a daily practice that you would go through? Well, I was doing everything I could at the time. So sketchbooks certainly was part of that. There was no schedule to keep. I was passionate about it. So I might draw all night long sometimes, you see. Right. It wasn't, I needed to regulate a certain amount of time for something. Of course, when you're younger, you have more time. You have less responsibilities. The older you get, the more you have to find a way. If you're a person with children, it's even more difficult, right? You've got to design your time in some way. Right. But uh, I still think it needs to come from an interest, a passion, in a way. I mean, I find it incredibly inspiring that, you know, I, I take your classes at the Animation Guild, and there's two or three Disney artists who have been studying with you for 20 plus years who still show up yeah. at the Thursday night class. Yeah, well, there's Disney people. Uh, there's Disney television people. There's Disney uh, feature people. There's DreamWorks people. Um, and I've had people come from uh, also some from Sony Imageworks and so on. After all these years studying and drawing the figure, what keeps you so engaged about it? What keeps me so engaged? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not finished. I, <laughs> Good answer. I, I think, you know, I, I it's still evolving. I'm still looking. I'm still trying to find that edge, and press against that edge to uh, to go further. I don't know. It's is it to draw better? I don't know if it's to draw better, but it's it it of course it is. It's to know more. To that there's more there. There's always always seems to be more there now. Most of the professionals that I've worked with and that have taken my classes and we've had conversations about this, you know, why do we keep doing this? Well, we haven't arrived. And it used to be all about arriving to a level, you know, like you reach a plateau or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're, we're all kind of laughing at that now. No, there is no plateau. It's, you know, it's an evolution that constantly goes on. It's always a, a work in progress. One begins to relax in that because no, one's no longer looking for the, that plateau. But in the beginning, that's all one is looking for. When do I arrive at a place where I can be considered a professional, when I can consider myself a draftsman or a good artist or whatever? We're looking for these, these um, landmarks. But after a while... We might see landmarks go by, but they're, they're much less meaningful. It's, the, it's actually the movement forward that really matters. It's the, it's the, continue, the continuation of this journey on finding uh, more interesting things and better ways to, to handle the subject, or maybe new, uh, different ways to approach it. So I find that people that have been working a long time are very comfortable just being in the process of it. And some of us are not just pursuing this to, to refine and, and build our craft to the highest possible level, but maybe we're pursuing story ideas. Maybe they might be uh, any number of things. It could be aesthetic concepts about form, or it could be about space and form, it could be about character and expression or something about the relationship and narrative between one character and another. There are so many different ways 
that one can go into the drawing process. There's so much available. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think my first year was just about getting some skills and being okay with making a crappy drawing. I'm probably, I mean, I'm very much still in that phase, but now I can apply some deeper concepts and things are starting to work. So Certainly when you have some skills, you're able to tell a better story. So the development of skills is not the end. It's just the beginning. Right. Now you might pursue any number of things and that could, you know, uh, create a different pathways for people. We're not all traveling down the same road at that point. We might have different interests. We want to, where we'd like those skills to take us. Right. The kind of stories we might like to tell. Do you remember and at any point where there was a significant leap in your skill level and what that was associated with? There have been moments when I've seen that. But in the overall, I feel like there's no time to look back at that. It's a uh, it's too self-reflective at the wrong moment. So the only time I can, I, I don't like to look back at what I'm doing while I'm working. Mm. So it becomes, one becomes too self-aware. It takes the focus away from the doing. Where I do find that there might be some evolution in my drawing is when I, when I look back at a, a batch of drawings that I'd been doing for the last year or something. I go, okay, now I can see this progress. But I don't have time to look for that in the moment. I think it's the wrong place to look for it. The right thing to be doing is to constantly being, is to, to be constantly evolving, right? Not be watching how I'm evolving. Because that divides the attention, I think, in a way that's not beneficial to the Right. evolution of the drawing you can get very stuck right in that point yeah i think a lot of students do that they constantly stop and evaluate and it's not the kind of evaluation that's helpful it's a criticism the evaluation is not a true evaluation it's a criticism hmm. right so uh for me i have had moments like i said those moments uh might come as a, oh my God, look at that. And suddenly everything changes. So that happens occasionally. But I don't think that's the norm. That's more rare. Mm -hmm. That the real evolution happens in almost, almost in an invisible way. It's interesting though, because I've heard you say certain things numerous times, and then one night it just lands in the right way. And mm -hmm. suddenly I have a new understanding. Or even just as simple as, I remember you came around to my pad one night and you were looking at my gesture and you said, why don't you start with the shoulders first? I've been starting with the spine. And that just changed everything. And then once you, I got familiar with that, it's like, well, I'm going to start with the hips first and see where the relationship, like, sure. it's just something that subtle can make an entire difference. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yes. And I, I think a lot of ideas, they have to be heard many times before they sink into the soil. But then like seeds, they need time to, um, gestate and oftentimes you don't see the result of that until one day it just pops up there it is or even sometimes I will conceptually understand what you're talking about but I still can't do it <laughs> right but then one day bam well I've also had students say that 
they they've understood an idea a certain way and then a year or so down the line oh wait a minute this is what he means it changes everything right so an understanding can actually shift levels at some point it might work on a, on some level but then it has a it has a it has a bigger message and when that strikes then it's it's like an aha right so a little earlier you mentioned that you'd gone to Italy recently and I know you were showing some work there and teaching are you are you moving a little bit more into the fine art side of things I've never really made a distinction uh, between between the two I mean I'm not storyboarding right now but I mean all of my drawing even though it addresses story I'm also thinking of it every drawing is a thing in itself every drawing is is an exploration for me. So in that sense, it is fine art. And I've always regarded it that way. It's not a painting, it's a drawing. But a drawing has a certain validity to it and a strength to it that, especially if it's not done so much as a rendering, but as a, as a thought, an idea, as a piece of poetry, uh, at least for me, it, it has a, a sense of uh, substance that can't be found any other way. And so I'm, I'm actually pursuing this in the same way as I might pursue painting. But I'm pursuing drawing with, with a kind of serious intent towards finding this poetry of the human figure, of presenting that poetry, of showing that it, the excitement of energy and, and movement. I think, as I said, uh, these ideas that came from me working in animation have really helped liberate my approach to the drawing. And I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. So it, it gives me, in a certain sense, an approach towards drawing, unlike, in a way, any of my predecessors in my, my, my lineage. I'm bringing things in that really come from other experiences in my life, which you know help bring a personal signature towards my work that really make it uniquely different than other people's work. Uh, perhaps anybody could say that, but I, I have to say that that's true about my work, is that even if I do something that looks like it's in the, in the style of the Renaissance, it's, it's much, much more than that for me. And I'm actually pursuing it in a, in a, with a much broader uh, question as to what I might be looking for so I'm finding that I'm enjoying exhibiting my work more and more. And, and so when I was asked in Florence to have a drawing show there, I was more than happy to do it. And I did have a show of a hundred original drawings in Florence last year. So that was fun. And I enjoyed that. And I will probably continue to do that. Yeah, I was super bummed. I was not able to make that show in Florence. As you know, Florence is very, has yeah. a special place in my heart, but um, hopefully the next one. So how can people learn more about your teachings and your thinking? And Sure. Um, well, I do have a YouTube channel. I believe it's called Carl Ganas Studios. And I have some 20 or more uh, videos there. And you can certainly get a sense of how I teach. If you are um, a member of New Masters, 
I'm also doing some things for them. So look me up in that venue. Uh, I have two websites. One is spiritofthepose.com and the other is carlganas.com. And if you wanted to contact me, you could do it through those websites. I also have three books available. One is called Spirit of the Pose, and one is called Spirit and Force in Figure Drawing, and the other one is called uh, Headshots. So you can look those up, peruse through those, and see if those are of interest to you. For sure. Carl, I won't take up any more of your time. Thank you so much for doing this. Well, thanks for bringing me in. And I will see you on class on Thursday. (laughs) Okay. Thank you.